It's the first Monday of the month and the first Monday of the year. It is our monthly Q&A show with Bonnie. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 330. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. Happy New Year to you. If you're picking up this show for the first time, the first Monday of most every month, we air a Q&A show, taking your questions in and spending some time responding to them so uh, we can hopefully provide some perspective to you, a little different than maybe what you've been thinking. And uh, just like every month, I'm glad to welcome Back to the show, Bonnie Stahoviak. It's been a few months, Bonnie, because we did that uh, gift show a few months ago, and I'm uh, glad to have you back for a Q&A episode. Well, we're getting uh, started here again, kicking off another year with your questions, and we've got a whole bunch of them. So, uh, Bonnie, I'm going to toss it over to you to uh, read our first question here from Katrina. She writes, you aired an episode recently about leaning on others with strengths in areas that you lack. However, I feel like a leader, it's important to at least have skills in influencing I was thinking about how to approach this in addition to looking for a coach. And one thing that came to mind is to revisit the Dale Carnegie book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. My questions for you in relation to that episode are, do you believe an effective leader should possess skills in all four categories? How does one go about building up skills in the influencing and relationship building categories in addition to reading and applying the Dale Carnegie book? Katrina, thank you so much for the question. And the episode that Katrina is referring to is with Lisa Cummings. We heard a few months ago. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Uh, we talked a lot about Strengths Finder in that episode, and that's what the four categories are here that she's referring to. So, first, to answer your first question, Katrina, do you believe an effective leader should possess the skills in all four categories? I do believe that uh, we, as leaders, there, and part of what we talked about in that episode is there are areas for all of us, of course, that are more natural strengths, things that come easier to us than come to other people, of course. And there are areas for all of us that are um, areas that don't come as naturally to us. But there are some core things around leadership, and you identified a couple of them as far as relationships and influence. Even if that's not your core strength, if you're the leader, especially if you're the top person in the organization, you need to have at least a base level skill set and being able to do that well, which is really what your question is, is how do you go about doing that? And I love the fact that you've tuned into Carnegie's book as a way to do that. You've heard me talk about Carnegie's book before. So let me say something broadly, and then let's talk about some of the specific tactics you may use to do this. Here's the problem with leadership development in a lot of courses, training programs, organizations, is that knowledge is confused for skill. So let me give the example, the analogy of learning to drive a car. If you had never driven a car before and you were trying to learn how to drive effectively and be a safe driver, step one in that process is taking some classroom training, right? So you observe others, you learn the rules of the road, you take some tests. But if you never get behind the wheel of a vehicle and really learn how to do it, the knowledge alone, while important, and foundational as a starting point is not going to make you a good driver. So if you want to learn how to drive a car well and be very successful, ultimately you need someone to coach you. 
and to give you feedback real time when you're doing things that don't make sense or when you're about to hit a and drive through a red light and the kinds of things and the mistakes that many of us make when we're learning how to drive vehicles. And the problem with a lot of leadership development is, is just like this, is that there's the assumption that if you have the knowledge, you'll take the right action. That is sometimes true, and certainly you're more likely to take the right action if you have the right knowledge, just like you're more likely to be a safe driver if you know the rules of the road. But it's, it's very different activities because one is how much you know in your brain. Another one is actually taking the action to do it. It is really hard to change behavior, and it's hard to get started. And it's very easy, on the other hand, to convince yourself that just because you've read another book that you're a better leader. So I'm not saying don't read more books. We talk a lot about books on the show and we talk a lot about knowledge, Um, but don't stop there. And one of the things I learned from Carnegie over the years in teaching Carnegie courses is that practice does not make perfect. Many of us heard that for years. Practice makes perfect. Practice. Keep practicing. Practice doesn't make perfect. Practice makes permanent. If you practice the wrong way, you are going to solidify skills and behaviors that are incorrect or not as effective as they could be. And that's why a lot of us need coaches in our lives. We need people who can give us feedback. It's one of the reasons you're thinking about it, Coach Katrina, is you know that you want to have someone who can give feedback. So there's a lot of options in order to do that. So one is you can go out and hire a coach to do that, of course. But you don't have to go out and hire a coach to get that. You can find and partner up with a colleague in your organization who's good at that skill set, whatever that skill set is. Have them be your coach. And you offer them something that you're good at and you're talented at that you can help them get better at. Find a mentor who's skilled at doing that. If there's someone in your organization or your industry who's particularly skilled at relationship building, who's skilled at influencing others, um, team up with them, learn, observe, talk with them, uh, take them to lunch, find out what it is that they do well and and ask them for some coaching. Uh, you, you could create an association of people who care about the same kinds of things. You could apply to join our academy. I mean, one of the reasons we don't focus a lot on curriculum in our academy is so many of our academy members have read a lot of the books. Uh, they have a ton of knowledge. It's not the knowledge that's getting in the way for most of our academy members. It is taking the first step, getting feedback and coaching to develop new behaviors. So Katrina, the, the thing I would hope for you is, yes, get into the book, go back and review how to win friends and influence people. Then take the next step of take one chapter of the book, one of Carnegie's principles, and apply it for a week or a month and get someone who can help hold you accountable, who can give you feedback, even informally of what you're doing well, where you're trying, where you're failing, where you're succeeding. But the key is moving. Even if you're moving in the wrong direction, move because as you start doing things, you're going to learn what works and what doesn't. And when you fall on your face, that's one of the best times you'll learn and you'll get feedback almost immediately on how you can get more effective. As you can imagine, with two graduate degrees in leadership, Dave and I have read a lot of books about leadership and still enjoy reading them. I think Dave probably enjoys reading them more now than I do, but I still will find the occasional one. And they're different in the sense of, you mentioned the Dale Carnegie book, and Dave was asking, hey, did you read that? And it's been such a long time since I've read it, but what I recall about it is it being a book that I can't argue against any of the principles that are in there. Yes, of course, it's important to learn people's names. Yes, of course, it's important to allow people to save face. I mean, there, there's 
there's just a lot there that that I think is universal in terms of how to treat people well. And then there are the kinds of books that really take a slice of life around how we are different as people, but different doesn't necessarily mean bad. And so there's the whole world of personality assessments. And Dave has mentioned they, he, we both got certified in the Myers-Briggs type indicator. And there's some real criticisms around the re- research around personality assessments. And so I'm not really going to dive too deep in that, but we have joked before on many occasions about, well, the whole thing may just be a bunch of hooey, which by the way, for our uh, listeners from around the world is an expression, <laughs> meaning it may not necessarily have a lot of truth to it, but it still has helped us in our leadership capacity and also in our relationship with each other, even if it may not be as research oriented or, or quote unquote proven in the research, it just really helps us have better relationships and be better influencers. The other really big one, which Dave's had a number of in a number of episodes about are the strengths oriented ones. And this idea that there's a tool called the strengths finder. And I just went back and looked at my results fairly recently. And it's just so interesting how different we can be. And, and it helps me celebrate the other people that I work with more than just being frustrated that they're not more like me. But it just helps me have patience to be able to value more when people are different, when they bring different strengths. And we're not all going to have all of those strengths. And uh, another book, which by the way, Dave had a recent guest come on is the author of The Empowered Manager by Peter Block. And The Empowered Manager is another one of those like the How to Win Friends and Influence People that I would say the advice applies to everyone. You know, a lot of really lifelong principles dictated in that book. So I think what you're running into possibly a little bit is just the difference between these more strengths-oriented or more personality-oriented books and tools and resources and then those books and tools and resources that's that would argue more all leaders would do this. All leaders would benefit by becoming better at X, Y, or Z. And that may just help you set it up a little bit in terms of how to make use of the things that you're reading. And of course, one really great thing as you're reading the books is to write down key actions that you want to take and then having some kind of a measurement for how you're going to hold yourself accountable. Or as Dave mentioned, if you're in some sort of a small group dynamic with other people, you can make those commitments more verbal and then ask people for feedback as to how you're doing it, incorporating some of those goals. I have found both kinds of books really, really helpful to me. And I also will say that because Dave and I, in the kinds of education that we've had, we come across a lot of the criticisms around some of those tools that if you don't feel like they are resonating with you and you don't feel like they're really helping your relationships, then you can just kind of toss them aside because there are some questions that have been out there as to the validity and reliability of some of these instruments. The next question is from Sarah. Sarah writes and asks, do you have any suggestions for a senior leader who would like to begin having proactive and supportive conversations with an employee who will be retiring in a few years about the legacy he wants to leave and about what he is going to do once he retires. I really liked this question, Sarah, and I'm glad that you're thinking about these things. I do want to caution just right up front that we all need to be careful of making assumptions. And this is where we can expose ourselves to legal risk 
in terms of asking a lot of questions around, oh, retirement's coming. Are you thinking about taking those steps? I mean, making the assumption, for example, that just because we would all retire on our exactly on our 65th birthday, I'm totally just making this up, but that everybody else would as well. Sometimes people want to keep working or need to keep working you know, into their 70s as, as an example. So the, the first thing I would just tell you is it's wonderful that you have that orientation toward wanting to have those conversations because how great that people who are thinking about retiring, if they've expressed that to you, can make more meaning out of the time that they've invested in their career. So it's a wonderful way of thinking. Just be careful you're not the one bringing it up (laughs) because it may not match the plans for the person. So asking a lot of open-ended questions that don't contain a lot of assumptions in them. And let's let's assume that this person has brought up with you, uh, you know that retirement is in their plans, you know, for the some particular season in their their future and then I would probably stay away from too many questions maybe at all about what he's going to do once he retires. I, I wasn't entirely sure where you were going with that, but again, I I just don't want to be making a lot of assumptions about other people's lives and that that kind of thing. Like I want to leave that for them to have the greatest agency in their lives for deciding when the time is right for them to move on. I just wouldn't want to at all seem like I was being discriminatory or, or taking any actions that would disregard the contributions that someone has made. But people that have made contributions love to talk about that. They love to talk about how they would like to leave a legacy. I have seen in different organizations benefits to having these individuals participate in task forces. Of course, a task force is different than a committee because a task force ends. So if we can get them engaged in helping to solve some of the organization's challenges in some shorter term project kind of ways, that can be really helpful. And if we're thinking about really how to, if this person's a valued individual, how to really maximize their legacy, it can be often helpful if you work for an organization where there's a possibility for flexible work arrangements. I have also seen in organizations where individuals, maybe they go to part-time or maybe they're just more on a, I don't want to say a contract basis because that sounds too formal for the kind of arrangement that I mean, but maybe they get to take the summers off and go stay in a cabin somewhere because that's when they're with their grandchildren or something like that. But then they get to come back and, you know, work for the three months up to the big kickoff of a new product because that's what they were particularly always good at and kind of winding down to hand off some of that legacy to people that are moving up in the organization. So those kinds of flexible work arrangements, again, whether it's part-time or whether you get longer seasons off and then these shorter kind of projects and mentoring types of relationships to bring other people up in the organization. But again, Sarah, I'm so glad you're having these conversations. I do work with a number of individuals who are nearing retirement. And I just recognize we don't, I mean, it's not my role and I, I, I don't, I don't insert myself into these conversations, but I will say I have just witnessed so often people saying they're really expressing the hurt of, Oh, I just had such and such a birthday. And that really bothers me because my dad had a heart attack younger than what I am now. And I miss him. And I, I, I mean, there's so many times where, where this particular age, I mean, that's a huge transition for people in their lives. And if we look to the medical research, when people do decide to retire, it often can coincide with some, 
ramifications on their overall health. And so the, to the extent that what we can do to help people make that transition a little bit easier, have more of a sense of meaning around the work that they did do, and then, you know, potentially be able to re-engage if that's an appropriate arrangement that both parties would be open to. I mean, it's just a, a wonderful thing. So thanks for asking the question, Sarah. And I really do celebrate you just trying to help make this easier for the individual and then also have it be better for the company as well. We don't know the full context of your situation, Sarah. And if you this is a situation where you know this person well and you've been having conversations about their transition, one of the things, of course, always to do is to ask, what kind of legacy would you like to leave? And that will open up the doors to uh, some of the things Bonnie mentioned and also potentially open up the doors to what they do next and help you as the leader in the organization to look at you know what they're going to do next and how the activities they do over the next six months to a year or whatever the transition time to to their departure can do that not only is going to serve the organization well and help them leave a legacy, but also help them to make that really smooth transition that Bonnie was mentioning. So we wish you well, Sarah. Let us know what you decide to do and what the next step is for you and for them in the organization. This next question comes from Zubair. I was wondering if you can recommend a low-cost way to set up a 360-degree feedback for leaders in a nonprofit organization I help. Zubair, thanks so much for the question. I saw this question come in, Bonnie, and I actually emailed back Zubair right away because the combination of the terms low-cost and 360 had me a little bit concerned, and it sounded like it was something that Zubair was moving on pretty quickly uh, in their organization. So I asked a few more questions and was trying to figure out what was the objective uh, that they were looking to achieve. And what he said is he wanted to really get a sense of individual awareness amongst this team, this leadership team within the organization. I'm not sure how many people uh, involved, but also to get the manager some feedback on what people discovered through an assessment process. So uh, I have a few thoughts on this, Subair, and a few thoughts for any of us who are thinking about bringing in assessments and especially bringing in 360s to a team of people or even an executive team is if you're looking for the outcome like Zubair is in this situation of identifying some important issues, of helping raise awareness, there are a lot of ways to do that that don't involve the complexity, the cost, and some of the risks of doing a 360 for a large number of people all at once. StrengthsFinder, um, MBTI, uh, DISC is another popular tool out there. There are a number of assessments out there that you can take as an individual assessment, as in you don't get ratings from other people, which by the way, for those of you who are not familiar with the 360, that's what a 360 is. It's, it's typically the assessment goes out, you give yourself a rating, and then a manager gives you a rating, your peers give you a rating, your direct reports give you a rating, and in some cases, even friends and family members give you ratings. So you get a, uh, a really holistic view of how you show up for other people in the world. It is a very, very powerful and can be a very effective tool to use in leadership development. But it is complicated. It's costly. It takes time. And there's a lot of dangers with doing a 362. So one is the cost. So low cost and 360s don't tend to go well together. Even just the materials for 360 tend to be a lot more costly than doing individual assessments. The other challenge and the reason, Zubair, that I was specifically concerned for you thinking about this for a team is um, if you're going to do a 360 with a large team, 
Say you have an executive team of six to eight people, and you're going to have everyone do 360s with each other. Well, if I'm doing a 360 for the other, if everyone's doing them all together, I'm going to be filling out six or seven or eight or however many people in the organization because I'm peers for all those people. I'm going to be filling out surveys for all of those folks as they're filling out surveys for me. And it's not unusual for a 360 survey to take you know, 20, 30, 40 minutes to get feedback. You multiply that by six, seven, eight people. Even if you're going to invest the the half a day, day to do all of that for each leader in the organization, uh, people get what they call survey fatigue, where you, after you filled out a few surveys, you start to just start going through it. You don't take it as seriously as you probably would if you weren't doing as many of those. The other challenge with 360s is People sometimes use 360s as a way to give feedback and sometimes not appropriate feedback in ways that they probably should be communicating in person. So people can sometimes attack in a 360, depending on how much filtering is happening and who's reading that. And is this is are these things being sent to the other person verbatim? That can be potentially very damaging. And the other challenge is, is 360s take time to debrief. If you're going to get feedback from everyone in your organization on your leadership skills from your manager, from your peers, from your direct reports, and you just hand that to someone as a report and don't really take the time to debrief that, it's one of the reasons executive coaches um, are, uh, are so skilled at this and also worth the investment is because many of them are very talented at taking a lot of this data and looking at it objectively and helping the person to really move through that over time of figuring out what is important to take action on. So uh, again, I'm not I'm not here to tell you not to do 360s. It's just with a large team, um, I'd be cautious about doing it unless you are willing to make the investment of time financially. And probably most importantly, you have someone who's an expert, uh, ideally who's outside of the team who can really facilitate that process. Um, and this, this brings up one other point that Zubera mentioned in an email back to me is um, reporting the results back to the manager. I I am a believer, and I know this is not a view that is shared with everyone in the training and development industry, and I've, I've certainly run into a lot of issues with this over the years in working with organizations on confidentiality with assessments. I think assessments should be used for development of the person, not for performance management. So if you're going to have someone do a 360, have the 360 be for the purpose of helping that person to get better and giving them some objective feedback but not have those results automatically um, shared with the entire organization or with the manager or the executive team because it, it just it's so easy for results, especially if they're negative in any way, shape, or form, to be used against that person in performance management. And it just can get really, really messy. Most people who get assessment reports, most executive leaders in most organizations do not have the experience or the skill or the training to really objectively look at a 360 report and to be able to identify what's meaningful, what's not. Um, and it's just so easy for things to be used against people. So um, even when the intention isn't there. So I'd be really clear up front when you were using assessments at any capacity of who gets what, who gets access to results. Um, whenever I work with leaders, unless it's a very unusual situation and we're doing assessments, almost always the rule, at least for, for me and the people I work with, is even if the organization is paying for the assessment, the assessment results go to that individual leader and only that individual leader, and then they decide who they're going to share it with. Now, I always encourage 
them to share it with others and to share it with their manager and share it with peers so they can learn and grow and get coaching from. But that is their decision to do so. It's not something that's automatic to the organization. So for all those reasons, Zuber, I think you're better off in most cases, especially if the organization is just starting to have some of these conversations, begin with an individual assessment first. Let that be the genesis of the conversation that happens. I'll let people do some self-discovery. StrengthsFinder and MBTI are great examples of assessments that allow for that and don't have a lot of risk associated with them. And then as you start to do more of that and people become more comfortable with that, then that may be the place in the organization where you offer 360 or maybe you do that individually for people who are looking for more of that. So I hope that helps. I also helps, uh, hope that helps some of uh, the rest of you who are thinking about utilizing assessments in your organization. Get someone who knows what they're doing. Um, be willing to spend the time to make the investment in it. And, uh, and, and you'll be able to use assessments that'll help support leadership development in your organization. So the uh, next question here is from Isaac. Hi, Dave. My name is uh, Isaac DeYoung. Um, I'm relatively young. I'm only 25. I've only been in the professional workplace for two years, but recently this past year, I was given the opportunity to lead some interns at our company, and your podcast has really helped me navigate that. My question for you is about uh, work-life balance. Um, I know this is something you've talked about a few times in the past, but my company, they ask 50 hours out of us every week. That's what our salary is based on. It's an engineering company, and that's relatively typical for an employer to ask more than 45 hours. And when I agreed to work for this company, I knew that, was fully understood that, was all fine by me. Fast forward two years, and it's very hard to turn off work. I'm regularly having to work 55 to 60 hours a week, and I do this because I really enjoy my job and the type of work I'm doing, and it's it's a lot of fun, and there's a lot of learning opportunity. But my company tends to breed workaholics. You know, I don't want to be someone who's a slave to my job for the rest of my life. And so my my question to you is, what advice would you give to someone in my position? The subject of work-life balance comes up often, as you as you talked about, and a lot of people are starting to really criticize that phrase. And instead of saying it's about work-life balance, it's more about work-life transition. I'm fairly sure that's what I recently read in an article from David Allen, who's a productivity person I regard highly. This whole idea that we go to work at a certain hour and we spend our hours there and then we go home at a certain hour and then there's no overlap between work and what we may do outside of those hours tends to be pretty unrealistic these days. I mean, a lot of the crossover happens, at least certainly for Dave and I both, there are times when, well, I mean, we're, we feel really fortunate about it, we, but if our kids get sick or maybe the person who cares for our kids gets sick, that happened recently to us. And we're just able to juggle stuff because work can still happen even if we're not physically at an office. But then that also brings up all kinds of challenges too, because work can still happen when we're not physically at an office. So the workplace has really changed considerably. I, I listened really carefully to your message and there were a few phrases that came up that to me are a little bit of raising some concern for me. First of all, you acknowledged very realistically, it's hard for you to turn work off. 
Oh, goodness, Isaac, it is really hard for me to turn work off. I get a lot of meaning when I read about people who have practices to help us be more fully present where we are. Dave and I will regularly be disciplined about putting phones away when we're at meals or when we go out on our weekly date night. I mean, the phones go away, but then there's the realistic of, well, somebody we're paying somebody to watch our children at that time. And so, yeah, we, we still have the ability for people to send us texts. So we're not completely detached from everything. And so it, it can be really hard to turn it off. And, and so I would, if I were you, I'd really start thinking about that and recognizing you have so much more control over that than anybody else in the world ever will. So what things can you do to help you turn work off that aren't going to rely on other people or this culture? I certainly know what you're talking about, the culture. In fact, uh, there's other people who have written about telling managers, telling vice presidents, go home, be the first person to leave because nobody can leave until, I mean, some companies, they just feel like I can't go home until the person that I report to goes home. It shouldn't be the case, but it's some, some places that's how people feel. So just helping change a culture is a different conversation than transforming your own life. You're talking about how do I transform my life? Not now, but for years into the future. And the first thing I would tell you, Isaac, is you have so much power and influence over this. Despite any culture, you have a lot of power and influence over it. It sounds like the, these are things that have happened without any words being spoken. I mean, we don't know that for sure, but it, it doesn't sound like someone said you have to work extra, but that, that you're just kind of settling into a culture where people tend to do that. One thing that's worked really well for me in my life is to, obviously we want to be thinking about setting good boundaries for ourselves. So what helps me set good boundaries is to build into my schedule reasons to walk out of work, even though, gosh, this may be a little weird because there's still people here. This next part might seem strange, but I try to never make it a habit to always say goodbye to people when I'm leaving work. I don't need to go down the hall. Hey, see you tomorrow. Hope you have a good night. See you tomorrow. No, I just leave. <laughs> I don't no, no announcements. Pick up my stuff and leave and do not ever set the norm that I'll do that. If other people do it to me and they do, I in my office I'm by the the door out to the outside anyway, so I'm not surprised that people do that. It would be like a weird thing maybe if they just walk by and didn't say anything, but I do walk by other people's offices and don't say anything. There's no reason to make a big pronouncement about I am leaving now. So that can be one thing that you can help. It seems like such a small thing, but just pick up your stuff and leave. Don't make an announcement. Don't set up any sort of social norms that you feel like you have to apologize for that. It really helps me to have appointments, even if those appointments mean it's an exercise class that starts at a certain time on my way home from work, or if there's somebody that you can meet who, if you both enjoy running or something like that, but if there's, if there's an actual appointment where something starts at a certain time, that can be one really helpful way to start to build that kind of discipline and setting of boundaries in yourself. You didn't mention this, but if you are able to work when you are not at work, to try to do that a lot less and set really good boundaries for yourself as to how much you'll allow yourself to be doing those kinds of things when you're not present in the workplace. And I, I guess the other thing I would just say is, I try not to really count hours. I don't very often look at how many hours I work and sometimes it gets a little really nutty and I'm sure I'm 
more than 60 a week, but there, I'm sure there are some that I'm less than 40. I mean, that it really varies for me, but the, you hold in your hand right now, the most valuable thing that any person can have. And that is that you are loving what you do. And when we love what we do, that is an absolute treasure that yes, can be hard to shut off, but how wonderful that it can be hard to shut off because you love it so much and getting to work with those interns and have an influence on other people. It would seem like your company does something at least meaningful to you in some way because the way that you spoke about it. And Dave and I have spent a lot of years with engineering type companies and we get it. I mean, it's the same thing with uh, public accounting companies and that really can become a part of a culture I would suggest personally, I, I'm not much of a risk taker. So at 25 years old, I'm not going to try to take down an entire company's culture that's been that way for a super long time and say, we're going back down to 40 hours a week and I'm going to lead the charge. I, I wouldn't do that. It's not really my nature. I, I think there would be some risks that I wouldn't be willing to take on. But I do think there are some things you could definitely do to take that 55 hours a week and get it back down to 50 without making a whole lot of noise about it in your company and just having a much richer life. And I absolutely wish you the best with that, Isaac. And I hope you let us know how that's going for you. Isaac, if you haven't already set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com, because one of the buttons in the podcast library is a button called work-life balance, you'll get access to a ton of the episodes we've aired over the last six years on this topic, tons of advice and messages that support what Bonnie said, and also some new ways to think about, especially in today's day and age of how we're all living longer and ways to attack work-life balance that are different than what a lot of us grew up with. And like Bonnie said, let us know what you decide to do. We'd love to hear. I mentioned the free membership a moment ago. If you have not leveraged the free coachingforleaders.com membership, you are missing out on a ton of the resources available here on the Coaching for Leaders platform, uh, including the entire podcast library since 2011, searchable by topic, the member casts that are aired just for free members. My library is posted there. In addition, now also all the notes that I'm taking and highlights from books of authors that I'm interviewing are up there. And there's a bunch more I'm not even mentioning here. You can get access right now by going to coachingforleaders.com. And the first thing you'll get the minute you set up your free membership is immediate access to my 10-day free audio course titled 10 Ways to Empower the People You Lead. If you're looking for a place to start, especially here in the new year, on building your leadership development 10 minutes a day for 10 days will get you the most immediate practical actions to become a better leader from many of the top lessons here on the podcast over the last seven years now. So go to coachingforleaders.com to activate that. And you heard me mention on some recent episodes, the Coaching for Leaders Academy. Uh, it is going to be coming up here again very soon. The Academy is a year-long leadership development cohort that's led personally by me for members of our audience who are managers, executives, and business owners who want to move beyond the knowledge acquisition we talked about in responding to Katrina's question earlier, and instead focus on movement. One of the biggest outcomes I want for every Academy member is to stop handling major leadership challenges and decisions in isolation and to start creating and turning to relationships with trusted advisors for objective perspective. Virtually all of us make better, 
more informed decisions when we're getting regular coaching and input in the toughest situations. Most of our Academy members today are sponsored by their organizations to participate. And if you are a manager, executive, or business owner who wants to make that transition here in 2018 from isolation to collaboration, then you owe it to yourself to see if the Academy may be the right fit for you. I'm going to be hosting several live virtual events in another week or so for those who are interested in discovering more about the Academy. So you're going to want to be on the alert list if you want to get details and early access to those virtual events. Just visit coachingforleaders.com slash academy to find out more. The Academy is application only, and those applications will open again next week. So again, if you want to discover more about the Academy, get access to those free live virtual events with me to discover more and get an early alert when the applications actually open, just visit coachingforleaders.com slash academy. Now, some related episodes to today's conversation. I mentioned to Isaac, we've aired a number of episodes in the past on work-life balance. If you hit that button on the website, one of the episodes that will come up is episode 266, How to Lead a 100-Year Life. My guest was Linda Gratton on that episode. She is one of the top 50 thinkers on business in the world and has written a book on the 100-year life. And we talked extensively about how the generation coming into the workforce today is thinking about work, timelines, and phases of life much differently than many of us did when we entered the workforce. And of course, many of us, myself included, are thinking about our work uh, phases and different aspects of life much more differently, as many of us have the privilege to live longer than our parents and grandparents did. Uh, episode 266 will get you thinking some new ways on that if you haven't heard it. Also, I would recommend episode 315, how to look beyond work-life balance. Bonnie mentioned that term, work-life balance is, is, you know, it's kind of being a misnomer these days. It's more of how do we handle uh, work-life interaction. Uh, Scott Barlow, my friend, was on episode 315. We talked about how to get beyond the traditional discussion about work-life balance and what are some new ways we can think about really navigating work and personal lives in this new economy. Also of value will be episode 320. We mentioned the conversation with Lisa Cummings earlier this year on StrengthsFinder and how to leverage differences to accelerate results. If you are thinking about using the StrengthsFinder assessment in your workplace, or perhaps you have used the StrengthsFinder assessment and you know maybe you didn't get the results you were looking for, you felt like you could have done more to leverage the data you collected from the assessment for your teams and for individuals, uh, episode 320, a must-listen on how to take the lessons from StrengthsFinder and to leverage it within your organization. And then finally, I would also recommend episode 328. Bonnie mentioned earlier the conversation I had a few weeks ago with Peter Block. Peter Block, the author of the book, The Empowered Manager, in addition to a number of other best-selling books. In that episode, we talked about how to deal with opponents and adversaries. If it is on your New Year's resolution list to do a better job of dealing with the tough people you know in the workplace, episode 328 is absolutely the episode you should be listening to. All of those past episodes you can reach by going to coachingforleaders.com slash the episode number. Next week, I'm glad to welcome back to the show my friend Tim Stringer. He's going to be coming back to teach us how to get the most out of our task management system. Tim is an expert on time management and task management. 
He'll be teaching us how to make the most of that list that most of us keep. If you have a question for a future show, go to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. Have a great week, everyone. See you next week.